0: Well, today is the day. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will return today in our text that is. And hopefully to our world. We have been building for this moment now since the beginning of this year. As we come to chapter 19 of the book of Revelation together, if you turn there with me in your Bibles, we now come to the second coming. Of Jesus Christ. And let me just be clear, when he returns, the whole world will know that he has returned. We believe here that he is going to return in a physical capacity and rule and reign for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom. But as we come to our text today, as we have been walking through the book of Revelation together with John. And each and every chapter unveiled another birth pain, another labor pain, knowing full well that sooner or later it would climax with the return of Jesus Christ. It's almost like we've been waiting for the other shoe to drop. I heard a story of a traveling salesman from Texas he traveled across the United States, of course, for his business. And one evening, he, got, he arrived at his hotel room late at night. Getting ready for bed, he sat on the edge of his bed and took off the first of his two large cowboy boots. And he dropped it on the floor as he removed it from his foot. And he just, boom! Boom! And he's like, you know what, I bet you there's somebody underneath me, and I better be more careful with the second one. I I wouldn't want to wake him or her up. So on his second boot, he took it off slowly and placed it gently on the floor, throwing his pajamas on. I guess cowboys wear pajamas. Got ready for bed, snuck in under the covers, and began to drift off. When suddenly he heard a knock at the door. And there was a gentleman in his pajamas with bags under his eyes and he said to him, he said, look, I've been waiting for the other shoe to drop, will you just drop it already? We come now to the most significant event in human history next to the first coming death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's not only us who are are anticipating this return. A recent Gallup poll told us that 66% of Americans still believe in a physical return of Jesus Christ to this earth. What's interesting is that's 25% more than the number of individuals who claim to be born-again Christians. 40% of all Americans believe that we are living in the last days. It's not just us. I think the world has finally gotten to a state that people are now realizing something is seriously wrong. I think it is interesting the number of songs that are being written now by various artists expressing the frustrations that so many of us feel. One song dropped just yesterday called Your America by an artist called Tom McDonald. Now, I don't recommend him, he doesn't know the Lord, but I was fascinated to find out that within four hours of his uh, video dropping, he had over 800,000 views. People commenting and reacting, saying, you know what, things are going in the wrong direction. Now, as much as we would like to believe that it would be just a new politician that would lead us into a new era, as Christians, you and I know that that will only truly occur when Jesus Christ returns. And in our text, we find that return here this morning. Did you know that the second coming of Jesus Christ is mentioned 1,800 times in the old testament and 300 times in the new testament that's one out of every 25 verses speak of the return of jesus christ it is spoken of in 27 of the old testament books and 23 out of the 27 new testament books for every prophecy in the bible about the first coming of jesus there are eight prophecies About the second coming of Jesus. The great C.H. Spurgeon said this, speaking of the return of Jesus Christ. He said the sound of his approach should be as music to our ears. In fact, I think our very reaction to the Lord's return is a good barometer to where we are spiritually. If you are right with God, you will look forward to the return of Jesus. If you are not right with God, then you will dread his return. Growing up in the 1970s as a kid, my mom had this beautiful way of delegating punishment to my father. When we would come home with school, either with a bad note or a good report card, which was not very often... Or a bad report card, she would simply just look at it out of our lunchbox and say, Just wait until your father comes home. Now, that was either a really good thing or a really bad thing. When we were good, my sister and I would wait by the front door and we couldn't wait to be, uh, you know, embraced by our dad. But if it was something bad, you would find both of us hiding under our beds not wanting to come out. The second coming of Jesus Christ is just like that. You and I as Christians, we say, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. But those who do not know the Lord, that event is a state of dread in their life because they realize that they are not right with God. And that when he does return, it will not be for the ushering in of grace and the salvation of individuals. It will be for the judgment of those individuals who have rejected him. Scholars have stated that there are four significant reasons that we anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. And the first of those four reasons is that Christ will return to fulfill numerous promises in the Bible. Zechariah 14.4 says specifically, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, this is the second coming, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountains shall move towards the north, and half towards the south. Or in Acts chapter 1 verse 11, this is reiterated, as he was told, t- telling his disciples, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up? This is the angel speaking to them. This same Jesus whom you ha- who was taken up from you into heaven will also come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus Christ has to return to fulfill all the promises and prophecies of the Bible that says he will. Number two, Christ will return to judge the nations for their unbelief. I think of that verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 11. Because the sentence against the evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the Son of Man is fully set in them to do evil. You know, just because God hasn't come down on people and that he hasn't returned yet, And we don't see the execution of his judgment as of yet. People misinterpreted that as thinking that God condones their actions. But in actuality, the Bible tells us clearly. It is not God condoning our actions, but God waiting patiently in long-suffering, hoping that we all will come to repentance. Third. Christ will return to remove Satan from his earthly dominion. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.4, whose mind the God of this age, that is Satan, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The reason our friends and family cannot see the truth in Christ is because Satan has blinded their eyes to that reality. It is only through the work of the Holy Spirit and God's word that those, that blindness can be removed. But when Jesus returns, he will remove Satan ultimately once and for all from the dominion that he has over this earth. Remember that when Adam and Eve fell, They relinquished the dominion that God gave them to Satan. Satan flaunted that dominion over Christ during the points of temptation in which Christ resisted and where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And in one of those, remember that Satan said, I will give you everything if you just bow down and worship me. I will give you all that you have come to take But just bow down and worship me because Satan did not want him to go in and through the cross where Satan would be defeated once and for all for good. And number four, Christ will return to establish his kingdom on earth. I I think of Isaiah 9-7 when Isaiah wrote, Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. "...upon the throne of David over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this." Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 19, 28. So Jesus said to them, "Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration," interesting word, "...when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory," You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But then, Paul sums it up this way. That for each and every one of us as Christians, it is our blessed hope of the return of Jesus Christ. He says this in Titus two thirteen and 14 looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. This is the greatest hope that we have, and that is the hope of the physical return of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, I can say with confidence that we are closer now than ever before. The world is spiraling out of control. We see the world aligning as the Bible said it would. And we see that things are being set, the stage is being set for the removal of God's church in the rapture of the church. The release of the Antichrist upon the earth. And then seven years later, the return of Jesus Christ to this earth once and for all. As we begin to look at the description of the return of Christ, I must remind you that John purposely describes him in the manner that he does to contrast that of their memory of his first coming. His first coming. Think with me, if you will. Think of Jesus Christ during his first coming, born in a stable, an infant being circumcised on the eighth day, a young boy teaching in the temple, a carpenter working in Nazareth, baptized by John, three years of his ministry coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his torture before Pilate and before kings, before the people, carrying the cross, and ultimately dying on the cross for you and I. And then on the third day, he rose again. But that image of Jesus remained even during John's time. The image that he portrayed of the gentle Savior, the one who came into the world to set people free from their sin. But John paints a much different picture here in the book of Revelation. The one who came in peace in his first coming is not coming in peace in his second, but that he may conquer and that he may reign as the King of kings and Lord of lords that he is. Notice with me that John begins from the very beginning to describe him in a whole new way. Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 19 verse 11. Now I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. John makes it clear from verse 11, right from the start of his description, that the purpose of his coming is to judge, number one, and to make war with those gathered in the area of Israel around Jerusalem at the moment of the Battle of Armageddon. But this time, he paints Jesus in a much different picture. He says, now the heavens open, and behold, when God returns, when Jesus returns, it's not going to be some distant event that the whole world is waiting to hear about. People are going to know it, okay? From lightning from the east to the west, the return of Jesus Christ is going to be an announcement much more prominent than the announcement of the star in the sky above Bethlehem. And then he's on a white horse. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, he symbolized to the people that he was coming in peace. And they hailed him, Hosanna, save us. And yet when he refused to release them from the oppression of the Romans... Because his coming was much greater than that. It was to release them from the bondage of their sin. To liberate them in a spiritual way. To allow them again to be born again. To be new creations in Christ. This time he comes on a white horse. And if a king rode on a white horse as he approached a city, the city would know that that king is coming to conquer. With war and his armies behind him ready for battle. It's a completely different picture given to us here. He is called faithful and true. John calls him this again to remind us that within this event, all of the promises of the Old Testament, all of the prophecies of the Old and New Testament are now being fulfilled before our eyes. That our king has returned to establish his kingdom on this earth. He is not there to save those who would receive him. He is there to judge those who have rejected him. He comes in a much different manner. He continues his description in verse 12. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. His eyes were an indication that he sees all injustice. He sees all unrighteousness. He sees all corruption. And he has now come to set the stage right. He has come now for reconciliation, for recompense. He has come to judge the earth for their dealings, with his people and his rejection of him. Much different picture. As John is writing this, I can't can't even imagine what he must have felt at that moment describing this as he's alone on the island of Patmos there in isolation and in exile. And yet I could just see a smile on his face. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming notice with me, he had this name that no one knew. Now there are many who would like to say that they have been told the name that is written that no one knew except himself. Let me tell you this and save your money if they write a book or give a message. They don't know what this name is, okay? It is most likely a description of a name so holy that cannot be pronounced by fallen man. In the same regard that Yahweh was approached in the way he was, where scribes and scholars wouldn't speak his name out loud because they felt that it was irreverent to do so. But again, John is painting him as the returning God in which he is. In verse 13, notice with me. And what he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, And his name was called the Word of God. If you remember with me, when Jesus went before Pilate and he was rejected by the people and they cried for Barabbas, remember he was taken and scourged, he was whipped and beaten. A crown of thorns was uh, placed upon his head and punctured his skull. He was then draped with a horse's blanket and they called him royalty as his blood dripped upon that robe in which he was supposedly to wear. And each and every step that he took from there on in the portico to Galgotha, the place in where he was crucified, his blood saturated that garment and he allowed it to do so Because ultimately, his crucifixion was going to atone for the sins of the world. But in his return, it is not his blood in whom he's covered with any longer. It is the blood of those who stood up in rejection to him. It's the blood of those who stood against him to create war. It is the blood of the winepress in which he tread in the judgment of unrighteousness before him. I think of the words of Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. As Isaiah writes and tangles within it, interwinds within it, the prophecy of his return. Who is this who comes from Eden, Edom, with dyed garments from Bo- Bozrah? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatest greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger. I have trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. I I have stained all of my clothes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the people in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth." much different picture of Jesus, right? much different. And John paints this purposely. But in it he once again refers to Jesus as the word. Notice with me. And his name is called the word of God. This is not by coincidence. This takes us back to his gospel. In John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5, where John specifically uses a term for Jesus that would have just uh, spiked the interest of those hearing and reading this, he calls Jesus the Logos, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, that, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Why did John call him the logos? It is a word that is used both in Greek philosophy and in Jewish wisdom. It's a word that is very specific to intellectual philosophy during the times of the Jewish people in Israel and also the influence of the Greeks. Israel and Jerusalem at this time, at the first coming of Jesus Christ, was still greatly influenced by the Grecian culture, okay? It wasn't until later that Rome, even though they were in position of, uh, possession of Israel at this time, that the Roman influence on their intellectualism really became apparent. It was known as the Grecan-Roman uh, era. The Greeks believed that the Logos was the expression of wisdom. But they also held another understanding of the word logos. And that is this. That the logos represented an intermediary between their pagan gods and the people. It was through words that were expressed in Grecian philosophy that allowed for the wisdom of the gods to come down and to teach the people words physical literal verbal words but john uses it in this way that the culmination of all jewish wisdom and the intermediary action of the word in greek all culminates into the person of jesus christ meaning that jesus christ is the beginning of wisdom to the jews That Jesus Christ is the ultimate intermediary between God and man. And notice with me that everything here in the Greek is in the singular. Meaning that he's the only way between God and man. Paul the Apostle picked up on this and said that there is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. John says, if you want to know the wisdom of God, that wisdom is found in Jesus Christ himself. What an incredible thing to discuss. You don't think that he had the ear of the people when he used this word? I bet your ears perked up when they heard this. Because then in verse 14, he says something more. He says that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And they would have been like, John, what are you saying here? Are you saying that Jesus is God? That's exactly what John is saying here. That Jesus is God. And in verse 14, notice with me. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white, clean, Followed him on white horses. Let me just say this. If you've never ridden a horse, you are going to. Okay? This is us, folks. Those who have been raptured to be with the Lord now return with the Lord. Now, before you think that we're going to be armed to the teeth, ready for battle, we're going to find out in a minute that we don't even have to do anything. God is going to do everything. But we will return with Him at this moment. In Revelation 17, verse 14, "...these will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with them are called chosen and faithful." In Jude 14 and 15, we read, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints, that's you and I, to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them, all of the ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way. You think they're ungodly? And all of the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's you and I, folks. We return with him on white horses. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't had good experience riding horses, okay? I remember that on our first wedding anniversary, Dean and I went horseback riding, okay? And I always get the horse that looks like he's medicated, okay? I, I always get that one, you just kind of look at it, and you know that there isn't something right there. You know, Dean always gets these beautiful horses, you know, and, and, I, and I get the one, it looks like, all right, you are one step from the glue factory, pal, all right? And we're riding on these trails and it's beautiful and this, it was just a gorgeous day and so forth. But then all of a sudden we started coming up to two men that were working on the fence, Okay. And they somehow thought that using a nail gun was a good idea. Well, as soon as they shot that nail gun, I think that's my horse thought, thinking, I'm getting ready for the glue factory. I'm out of here. Okay? There was no stopping him. I was finally pulled over by the police for speeding. No, I'm kidding. I didn't have good luck riding horses. When we went down to Tennessee... Of course, Din and Autumn, they wanted to go horseback riding in the Smoky Mountains. They say, Dad, why don't you come with us? Nope, thou shalt not tempt the Lord God. "Uh Uh-uh, you guys do it. And then I picked them up a couple hours later, and they said, oh, Dad, it was the most incredible thing. We walked on the side of the mountains on little paths about two to three feet wide. And when I, and Dina goes, yeah, and when I got scared and concerned about it, the tour, the tour guide turned around and said, don't worry, the horse doesn't want to fall off uh, the cliff any more than you do. See, that's not comforting to me, okay? <laughs> I have no idea because I always get the one that I think is like one foot over the edge, you know? I'm just tired of being a horse. I'm just going to end it all. And by luck, I would be on the back of that thing, okay? You know? So, I, you know, I'm going I, to be the one in heaven. Lord, really? And if I get there and my white horse is one that's like this, I'm like, I'm out, man. I am out. But, of course, that certainly, I hope, won't be the case. Notice with me in verse 15. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. And that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords." This word of God is what he is describing here, proceeding from the mouth of Christ. This will not be a physical battle that we have to engage in hand-to-hand combat. He will simply judge and destroy the world with the word that he used, the same voice, the same word that he used to create all things, he will use to judge all things. And we will witness it and see it all. And I can just see us, you know, him going before us, we're on the horses. I'm the guy lagging back there. You know, because my horse finally said, I don't want to go any farther. And we get to see it all. And at that moment, we will rejoice, not over the death of the individual, because, but because Satan and corruption and sin and death will be destroyed once and for all. I think of the psalmist David in Psalm 2 who wrote this concerning those nations who have gathered there at Armageddon to anticipate the return of Jesus. And he asked the question, Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is Jesus, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the psalmist writes. The Lord shall hold them in desertion. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them with his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give it to you. The nation's For your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And speaking of this rod of iron, which means that Jesus will rule and reign in a definitive, permanent manner, that no longer will these things be gotten away with, but he will hold them accountable immediately. Isaiah talks about this. In Isaiah 11, 1 through 4, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not... Judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. And when it comes to the wine presses, we think of the words of Joel. In Joel chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Let the nations be wakened, not woke, wakened, and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats are overflowing, for their wickedness is great." Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And in verse 16, we read, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In various Gentile cities around uh, Israel in Asia Minor, It was customary to have various pagan gods. And the pagan god, of course, that was the most prominent was Zeus, okay, from Greek mythology. And on the statue, there would be written on his thigh, the God of all gods. And John is saying, when you see Jesus Christ return, on his thigh will be this, King of kings and Lord of lords. Once again, showing the superiority of Jesus Christ over the pagan gods embraced by the people around the world and showing that Jesus Christ is the one true God. Amen to that. How about it? Verse 17, and Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come, gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of the, all the people, free and slave, both small and great. These are all who have rejected Christ. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured. do you like how John just flows into it? There's no battle. There's no where our hero is almost down and out and then he comes back at the last minute. It's over, folks. Okay? Jesus has arrived. The beast has no power. The devil has no power. It's over. And God will bring it to a close. And then the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence. By which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast. And those who worshipped his image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from his mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Wow! Not this meek little Jesus that people see walking in and riding into Jerusalem. He came in peace. And now those who would reject him are now going to stand accountable to him. Jesus talked about this moment in Matthew 24, verses 26 to 28. Therefore, if they say to you, talking to his disciples, look here, he is in the desert. Do not go out or look here. He is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Meaning, speaking of this moment. In Luke seventeen thirty-seven, again we read, And he answered and said to him, Where is the Lord? So he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. When you see this moment, the destruction of all things, the false prophet, the Antichrist, and now we will read next week, the devil himself thrown into the lake of fire once and for all, all of those who have taken the mark on their hand and on their head pledging their allegiance to the Antichrist, they too will be cast in to the lake of fire once and for all. I want to read these words from Pastor Chuck Swindoll. Then suddenly it will all be over. In fact, there will be no war at all in the sense that we think of war. There will be just a word spoken from him who sits astride the great white horse. Once spoken a word to a fig tree, and it withered away. Once he spoke a word to the howling winds and heaving waves, and the storm clouds vanished, and the waves fell still. Once he spoke to a legion of demons bursting at the seam of a poor man's soul, and instantly they fled. Now he speaks a word, and the war is over." The blasphemous, loud-mouthed beast is stricken. Where he stands, the false prophet, the miracle-working windbag from the pit of hell is uh, punctured and stilled. Another word and the panic-stricken armies reel and stagger and fall down dead. The field marshals and the generals, the admirals and the air commanders, the soldiers, the sailors, the rank and file, one and all they fall. And the vultures descend and cover over the scene, and yet our God and Lord Jesus stands strong. Are you looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ, or are you concerned? You can answer that question by answering this one. There are many today in America who claim to be Christians, but there's no evidence of the new birth within their life. None. It has been asked of those individuals that if you were arrested and brought before a judge for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence of that Christianity to convict you? There are many who are playing games with God, thinking that there is always time to repent in the future. But yet the Bible tells us that tomorrow is promised to no one, absolutely no one. Yes, Jesus came the first time to save those who would receive him. And the Bible says today is the day of salvation. But at his second coming, he will come to judge those who have rejected him. Those who even believed that they were Christians and were not. As we hear those terrifying words of Jesus in Matthew 7.21. When many come before him and say, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these wonderful things in your name? And he said, depart from me, for I never knew you, you who practice wickedness. I leave you with these words from Pastor Greg Laurie. In his first coming, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. In his second coming, he will be clothed in royalty, in a robe splattered with blood. In his first coming, he was surrounded by animals and shepherds. In his second coming, he will be surrounded by angels and saints. In his first coming, to the door of the inn was closed to him. In his second coming, the door of heavens will be opened to him. In his first coming, he was the Lamb of God coming to die for the sins of the world. In his second coming, he is the ferocious lion of the tribe of Judah bringing judgment in the wake of his return. Today is the day to get right with God. And only you can answer that question that we have asked. Would there be enough evidence, enough fruit in your life to show and to demonstrate that you are truly his and that you are not waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming for the judgment of all the world, but you are waiting in a blessed hope anticipation of his return for the church at the rapture of the church, what could happen at any moment at this point. Amen.